part of what he has been doing here over the last several minutes, for those of you that are listening to the sermon, God's presence was very strong in this room. And there was a, uh, a period of silence where we were just sitting in his presence. And part of it had to do with him preparing us for what he wants to do here in this place today. He was, he was doing everything he can to prepare you here and watching and listening. Prepare you to receive what he is wanting shared today. We have been in a series on um, God's judgment. And we're getting close to the end of that series. And if you would please turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We've had two verses that we looked at that were what you might call foundational verses for this series. The one was in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17 where God let us know that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. A lot of people don't understand that. A lot of Christians re- refute these concepts of judgment. And yet in this series we've seen so much of it. How it's very real. And there is a judgment that takes place in this world prior to our standing before Him on that final day of judgment as described in Revelation. But in John chapter 12, in verse... 48. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. What we're seeing here, in essence, is a declaration from God to let us know that judgment is based upon the standard of His Word. And He's letting you know ahead of time that on the final day of judgment, let alone in this life now, but on the final day of judgment, and and just to create imagery, you will stand before Him and He will have Bible in hand And He will be able to open and reveal to you what you have or have not done in line with His Word. This is the standard. Now, I don't know that He will exactly have a Bible in His hand, but I do know this will be the Word. This will be the standard. 
This will be the way that He is judging you. All of us. But it's going on now. The very fact that we have His Word means we cannot exempt ourselves from what He has said. And too many Christians, and again, this entire series is focused almost exclusively on Christians. There are too many Christians who say they're not rejecting Him, but they're not receiving His Word. And so, we create a life that is not described in Scripture. And then we call ourselves faithful Christians. Over the years, many times in my life, I've heard stories that go something like this. A person was feeling great. Everything's fine. Appears to be healthy. And uh, then they had a, a cough, some congestion. They just wrote it off as, you know, allergies. Went to the store, bought some over-the-counter decongestants or whatever. But yet it just kind of lingered. So they went to the doctor. Doctor ran some tests and told them, you have stage four cancer, some kind, whatever it is. And at most, I give you six months to live. And some of these cases, two or three weeks later, the person dies. And yet, the person was doing great, we thought. The person was in great health, they thought. Then all of a sudden, and, uh, you know, we scratch our heads and wonder, how can this be? Well, that cancer was at work in that person's body for a long time. And the person didn't realize it. Or maybe they did. Maybe, maybe they said, I've battled this cough off and on now. For a few years. You know, I, I just, I'm just tired of it, Doc. I just want to check out. But many times the person really doesn't feel like there's anything going on in them that could kill them. And I, I personally have known people where this happened. And what a shock. And here's what's interesting. In the body of Christ, there are many things in Scripture that are identified as sin. And so what we do is, um, you know, we work with these folks to help them get past drugs, alcohol, um, pornography, adultery, fornication. I mean, whatever is going on in their life that could bring about, you know, eternal separation from God. But, we fail too often to address 
an unseen transgression that is so deadly it could separate a person from God for all eternity. In fact, oftentimes we just dismiss it as really not being that important. And furthermore, oftentimes um, we just don't think it's a problem. But I'd like you to look over in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. Remember, Jesus said, now I'm going to paraphrase, you better not reject me and my words. Because what I speak to you is a standard by which you will be judged. And Jesus taught on the kingdom. He did not teach the law. He taught the kingdom. And as we know, there in John chapter 3, Jesus made a statement, you can't even get into the kingdom Unless you're born again, you have to accept me as Savior. So when we read what we're getting ready to read, it applies to people in the kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father Forgive your trespasses. Do you not think that unforgiveness is is a serious issue? I really hope this sinks in. Because when Jesus says, if you forgive not people for what they've done to you, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Trespasses. This is probably the most serious mistake that Christians make. Because in 1 John it says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we want to talk to God about our pornography, our drugs, our alcohol, our adultery, our cursing and and all of those things. But unforgiveness is right in there with that. And we have this idea. Too many have this idea. I'm washed in the blood of Jesus, so it's okay. And yet, God is saying right here in His Word, If you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Is that the condition you want to stand in on your final day of judgment? Is that what you want? Look over in Mark. Mark chapter 11. In Mark chapter 11, verse 22, Jesus says, 
Have faith in God, for verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if you have aught against any that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. How many Christians are standing in a position of unforgiveness, meaning that issues in their own lives have not been forgiven because they refuse to forgive And yet they think everything is okay in their life. Just like with that cancer. It was in a person's body for who knows how long. Six months, eight months, a year, three years, five years. And cell by cell, it was growing. Cell by cell, it was multiplying. Cell by cell, it was destroying the life of the other cells around it. Slowly, it was killing that individual and the person didn't even know it. It was silently killing that individual. And this is why I refer to unforgiveness as the silent killer of Christians. Because it's not something, you don't put a bottle to your lips and drink unforgiveness. It comes from within. And yet, we have so many people in the body of Christ who are guilty of this sin. It is a sin. You need to write that down, mark that down, engrave it on the palms of your hands, you know, figuratively speaking. It is a sin. It is a sin that will take you to hell. Now you need to understand that. But not only is it a sin that will take you to hell, it is a sin that will bring judgment on your life now. And I'll get into that in more detail a little bit later. Here in this church, this goes on in churches all over. But here in this church, we've had situations over the years where somebody does something to someone and the someone doesn't like it and gets offended, takes that attitude of offense, says things like, well, maybe it's just time to go find another church. Maybe it's just time to go someplace else. Go. Go. Seriously, leave. But here's the problem. That rotten root that is in you leaves with you. And you will take it to the next church. And you can write this down if you want to, but it's just a matter of time. Somebody in the other church is going to do something that you don't like. 
and you'll get offended again. Then maybe you leave that church and go somewhere else. And you begin developing this idea where all these people in this church are the same as those people in the other church. Really? You mean the entire congregation offended you? Everybody? But see, that's how this works. One person did the whatever, and then suddenly everybody in the church is a terrible individual, and you want nothing to do with them. And that's happened here, and there are people over the years now. The reason they left was unforgiveness. And it's usually always directed toward me. And when these things happen in churches, usually always, it's something about the pastor. Not always, but very often. Well, you know, he he preached something. He's preaching about me. Now, I don't appreciate that. Well, you know what? It's not like I have um, hidden cameras in your home or in your car. And if I happen to teach on things that touch you, you know, it could be that God is revealing it to me about you without revealing it to me about you. And if you get offended at me, all I'm going to say is, God help you. That's pretty gutsy. But it goes on. It goes on. Look over in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Now I'm just going to let you know ahead of time. There's no way I can cover all this this morning. This will be part one. Tonight will be part two. But tonight, I'm going to be sharing some things with you about unforgiveness that I'm guessing most, if all of you, have never heard in your lives. Things that I'd never heard until I... Well, I just won't go too far into that. We'll wait for tonight. But in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. Now, this is talking about what Jesus did for us and making reference to, initially making reference to, the original covenant that God had established with man. And he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, 
and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant he hath made the old, the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish. But notice this. He's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant. And in verse 10, he says, I'll put it in their mind and in their hearts. Do you know what that is? That is called conscience. When you get born again, you have a conscience that you never had before. Because it is a conscience that is directly associated with the life and nature of God that you received when you got born again. That's why in verse 11 he says, they're not going to teach every man his neighbor and brother saying, know the Lord. He says, for they're going to know me from the least to the greatest. You say, well, what does that mean? What it means is this, you do not need a book that we would call the Bible today. You don't need a book to give you the revelation that God is alive. You have a conscience and a nature in you that confirms the living reality of an eternal God who has saved you and brought you into this new covenant. You have a conscience. And this conscience is, if you will, covenant aware. The conscience is kingdom aware. The conscience is nature of God aware. Because that conscience is directly associated with all of that and cannot be separated from any of it. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, turn over there. Ephesians chapter 4. One of the things about the New Testament, it's a revelation of kingdom living. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he said prior to his crucifixion, he said, there's more that I could teach you, but I can't right now because you're not ready. Well, part of the not ready had to do with the fact they weren't born again and didn't have a nature compatible with everything else he wanted to teach them. And so he said, but the Holy Spirit, he's going to come after me. He'll be in you. He'll remind you of all the things that I have said to you, meaning He'll bring to your mind all the teaching that I declared to you while I was with you the last three and a half years. But then he's going to pick up and go on beyond that because he will teach you all things and guide you into all truth. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, what we're reading, in fact, you know, you go through the whole New Testament there, Romans and, and beyond, you're reading kingdom principles. You're reading... New Covenant principles, you are reading principles associated with the life and nature of God in you and with that conscience. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. 
Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. There should not be a chapter break between chapter 4, verse 32, and chapter 5, verse 1. Because chapter 5, verse 1, continues the thought in chapter 4. And so when he says in chapter 4, verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you. With all malice be ye kind, one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, forgiving one another. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. In other words, if you do verses 31 and 32, you will be chapter 5 verse 1. A follower of God as dear children. If you do not do chapter 4 verse 31 and 32, you will not be a chapter 5 verse 1 follower of God. So, when it comes to this whole aspect of forgiving people, if you're holding on to unforgiveness toward anybody for anything, you are not a follower of God the way he describes it here in Scripture. Now, you may think you are, but not according to God's definition. And he says, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And he's given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Christ gave himself as an offering on your behalf. But he also gave himself as an offering on the behalf of the person or people who have offended you. Now, if you hold on to the unforgiveness, you might as well just be slapping Jesus in the face because you're not respecting what he did for you, let alone what he did for others. This word malice in chapter 4, verse 31, it's an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word uh, kakia, which may be a mispronunciation, but part of its meaning is wickedness as an evil habit of the mind. Now, that fall, unforgiveness falls into that. Because you see, if we're supposed to forgive as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us, and if we're supposed to walk in love as Christ also has loved us, then if we are not forgiving, that is counted as wickedness. One of the hardest things about this particular message, it's the Christians who don't want to believe this and would argue with it. Look, I, you, you need to understand, as long as you hold on to unforgiveness, it is that silent killer that is growing in you. And by the time the message is over tonight, you're going to understand this more clearly than ever before, but you need to get it straight. It's killing you spiritually. You're dying. Do you understand this? You are dying. Spiritually. Now, he says in chapter 4 and chapter 5, what we've just seen here, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, all this, he says, let it be put away from you. What that means is you have the choice. You can do this if you want. 
You can put it away from you if you want. And so you have people, Christians, somebody's done something. Now it could be spouse, it could be child, it could be parent, it could be somebody else in the church, or it could be, you know, a co-worker, a neighbor, what, I don't know. But as I'm standing here, look, it's not like we have thousands of people in this room right now. But unforgiveness is a plague in the body of Christ. It is a serious plague. And as I stand here right now, I'm comfortable saying there's at least one person in this room, you've got a problem with it. And it's impacting you. And you better get it straight. This is one of the reasons why some Christians would have a hard time coming to this church. Because things like this are dealt with. At least from this perspective. From a pulpit perspective. Look over in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Let's just pick this up in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now let me stop right there. There are two kinds of love in this world. You have human love and God love. God love is supernatural, divine in origin. Lost people can love very deeply. Love their spouse, love their children, love a lot of things. But that is not God love. And, and it's, this is a big mistake, my perception, a big mistake in the body of Christ because a lot of Christians think that operating by human love is the same thing as operating by God love, and it is not. It says right here, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. The kind of love he's talking about, it comes from God. Now, the moment you get born again, that love is in you. Whether you feel it or not, it's there. Love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. In other words, everybody that loveth with this God kind of love is doing so because they've been born of God, and they know God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, He's saying, you didn't get born again because you loved God, and God responded to your love for Him, so He sent Jesus and salvation to you? No. You got born again because you responded to God's love for you. And so here you have people all over the world, God loves them, but if they don't respond to that love by accepting Jesus as Savior, they die, they go to hell. But it doesn't change the fact that He loved them. And he continues and says, verse 11, look at this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And and here is... This, it's one of the stupidest statements that I have ever heard come from the mouth of any Christian. Well, I love them, but I just can't forgive them. 
Well, you can believe that all you want. But you're you're a fool. Because if you're loving God love, what we just read here, then you forgive. So how long are you going to hold on to something and reject God's love operating in your life? You're here in 1 John. Look in chapter 3. Look at verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Now, where it says does not commit sin, that's not saying you never, ever, ever again in your life will commit a sin. It's talking about you will not live a lifestyle of sin. Whosoever is born of God will not habitually commit sin. For God's seed, God's life, remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now, some people would say, well, if you commit a sin, you're not truly born of God. No, what he's saying here is this. If you're truly born again, you can't keep living this way and maintain the right relationship with God. You can't do it. In this, verse 10, in this, the children of God are manifest in the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Do you see this? He is associating a refusal to love as being contrary to righteousness. And he's equating this as somebody who's a child of the devil. Are you seeing this? This is God's perspective. He's the one that's put this in his word. He's trying to get across to us how serious this is. And in verse 11, he says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. The beginning of what? Well, let me just simplify it this way. From the moment you were born again, this is the message that you've heard that you should love one another. You say, well, where am I hearing that? <laughs> From that conscience in your new nature. You don't need a preacher to stand up and tell you, well, you better love your neighbor. You better love your brother in Christ. Those people that offended you, that person that, that walked by you and didn't say hello, that person that did this, that person that did that. No, he's saying you better love. Because that nature on the inside of you, that conscience, it's telling you love. It's sending you this message. Love them, forgive them. Look at verse 15. He says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Now, this word, you can say, well, I don't hate him. Okay, now wait a second. By whose standard? Are you talking God's definition of hate or yours? And this again is where the body of Christ messes up so poorly. They define hate according to what they've experienced in the world. Well, yeah, that would count, but it's, it's not simply that. This word hateth, it comes from the Greek word miseo. Again, maybe a mispronunciation, but part of its meaning is, the image that it presents is, refusing to love. So God is saying, He's trying to get across an image. And part of this image is this. If you're a believer, a Christian, that you have my life and my nature on the inside of you, 
I am love. That means your nature is a nature of love and forgiveness. If you refuse to forgive, from my perspective, you hate that person. And I see you murdering that person by virtue of your attitude. Not a literal killing of that individual here on earth like Cain killed Abel. But he's, he's given a figure of speech. From his perspective, what he sees, he equates it as murder. And he says, no murderer has my life on the inside. What does that tell you about what unforgiveness is doing to you if it's there? It's killing you. It is killing you. Just like God told Adam, if you eat in the day that you eat, you'll die. And he ate, but he lived to be over 900 years old. That's because that death was working in him, slowly but surely, killing him, and he died. It's the same thing with unforgiveness. In chapter 4, look at, at verse 20. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this is the commandment. Look at this. And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Do you see verse 21? Commandment. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. See there? When we love God and keep His commandments. Well, (laughs) we get in verse 21 of chapter 4 and he says, this commandment we have from Him, He who loves God, Love his brother also. It's a commandment. You understand this? It is a commandment. Now look over in John chapter 13. This is not the first time that we've heard this or read it. Over in John chapter 13, look what Jesus says in verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. How many spouses go home and tell their spouse about all the wrong that's been done to them? Do you realize what you're telling your spouse is I do not love that person. I do not forgive that person. And from God's perspective, it's almost like he's saying, well, why don't you just tell him the rest that you hate that person and that I consider you a murderer. Now see, we have this convoluted idea that we can sit and repeat over and over and over again to our spouse or our closest friend what so-and-so did, what so-and-so did, they're just the meanest thing, and just go on and on and on. We have this convoluted idea that we can do that, and it's okay. 
But what you're actually revealing, what, what you are doing, let me try to create an image. What you're doing, when you open your mouth and you do that, you are spewing forth bile and filth all over that person you're talking to. Because when anybody does that, if you've ever been around when somebody does that, do you not walk away from that conversation feeling as though you have been fouled? Feeling some kind of weirdness, a heaviness, a something that, and you wish you had never heard it? That's because of what you unleashed on that person. See, we, we create our own rules. Jesus says right here, a new commandment I give you. Well, see, John was there and he heard that. And then God moved on John by the Holy Spirit. He moved on John. Write it again in this book that you're going to, they're going to call 1 John. Write it again. Repeat it. I want them to know this is a commandment. It is not a suggestion. If you look in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Verse 46, Jesus says, And why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me, and heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house, and digged deep, and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth, and doeth not, is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. See, what we don't include in this enough is the concept of forgiveness. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord and refuse to forgive what people have done? Because my word says, you have to do this. You know, if, if I am truly your Lord, this is something you have to do. It, it's not an option. Because I'm here as a result of God loving you and wanting to demonstrate His forgiveness to you. Now back then, when He said this, what He could have said was, if you want to see this in action, just hang around a little bit longer. You're going to see me on that cross. That is God demonstrating His love and forgiveness to you. And as believers, there are too many Christians that just don't want to do this. I remember many years ago, I was in Tulsa for one of the conferences at the Family Prayer Center. And years ago, you would have um, people attend these conferences. Uh, well, People who either were in ministry or said they were in ministry. You have a lot of people out there in the world, Christians. You know, they call themselves evangelists. And maybe they are, maybe they're not. But, you know, they just, they've called themselves. And they're promoting themselves. A lot of them pass around cards or give you books and back then tapes or CDs or something to try to get you to invite them to their church. To preach. Well, one time there was a man came to me. You know, I'm. You know, we. You always meet people you never knew before, and he's well. I'm so and so, and 
uh, I'm from such and such, you know, and I'm a an evangelist or whatever he called himself. And he said, uh, you know, yeah, you know, I'd like to come and preach at your church sometime and all. But and then the conversation continued, and I'm listening to this, and he says, yeah, I tell people that um, you know they don't have to forgive if they don't want to. And I'm thinking, God have mercy, don't even come to our parking lot. Now, you think that's kind of funny? And it is. But in reality, I mean that. I don't want that person in the parking lot. And here's why. Because unforgiveness is not a physical condition. It is a spiritual condition. You ever, do you remember reading the comic strip Peanuts? And there was this one character called Pigpen. Everywhere he went, he had this like cloud of dirt like all over him. Christians that hold unforgiveness, they've got that a spiritual cloud. It's all over them. And sometimes when you get near people like that, you can feel it and sense it before they open their mouth. Unforgiveness. Well, granted, that fellow never got an invitation. In fact, I was glad that conversation ended really quickly. See, when we're born again, we enter into this new covenant that God was talking about. And it's a blood covenant. And the whole concept of blood covenant escapes uh, the modern world. We don't really understand. I've got a teaching on blood covenant. You really ought to listen to it. Because... What we've entered into with God through Jesus, through His blood, it's a blood covenant. It's administered by Jesus. He's the high priest of this new covenant. And this new covenant is established on His blood, divine love, and divine forgiveness. That's like the foundation for this this covenant. Now, refusing to forgive is a direct violation of that covenant. Now, way back when, when a blood covenant in Bible times, like the whole Old Testament, New Testament, a blood covenant was taken very seriously. And if one of the partners of the blood covenant broke that covenant, then the other partner would kill the one who violated the blood covenant. And in some cases, the person who was the victim of the blood covenant being broken, they, their family, their clan, would attack the family and clan of the blood covenant violator and just kill them all. That was not uncommon. It happened. So when Jesus was making the statement about, if you don't forgive, your Father will not forgive you. See, it's not just a matter that, that God just doesn't want to forgive. No, what's happening is this. You have broken the blood covenant that was established on the blood of Jesus shed for you. You have violated that covenant. And because of that, it isn't that God won't forgive you, but you've got to first make it right for violating the covenant. You've got to repent for this. How do you repent? You cannot go to God and say, God, please forgive me 
for not forgiving that person. No, first you got to forgive the person. Then you go and you ask for the forgiveness from God. God, please forgive me. Because if you just go to Him and think, who, boy, if I don't, if I don't forgive or something, I mean, if I don't make this right with God, then, you know, I could be in big trouble. And you go to Him and you say, oh God, forgive me for not, you know, forgiving so, so and so. But on the inside, you haven't dealt with it. It's still there in you. Yeah. You're not forgiven. And Jesus makes this clear in Scripture. And then God describes it differently over there in 1 John. He's saying, how could you say that you love me when you don't love your brothers, your sisters, your, your, your fellow children of God? How could you say that you love me? See, once we have violated this covenant, we are open to attack. We are oh, turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. See, we are open to attack because we're separating ourselves from deliverance and healing. In Matthew chapter 18, we'll just jump to verse 21. Then came Peter to Jesus and said, "Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times?" And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now granted, if you do the math on that, he's not saying that once you've reached that seventy times seven, that's it. You can hold unforgiveness. No, he's exaggerating for emphasis. And he says, therefore, is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants? And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought to him which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. Do you see the imagery here? How it impacted the entire family? You see this? Your unforgiveness? It's possible it can impact your entire family. In fact, it's very possible that a lot of family problems that go on in Christian homes can be traced back to unforgiveness. Now, I'm not saying it's 100% like that, but I'm saying it can be. It could be. Well, he says, The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. But he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Do you think Jesus was lying when he said this? See, this is what we as Christians generally do not want to believe. 
that anything like this could happen simply because I don't want to forgive. But what happened to you? See, here's how you got born again. You prayed and asked God to forgive you and take away your sin nature and give you his life and nature. Now, I don't know the exact words you used, but essentially you were asking him to forgive you for everything. And guess what? He did. He forgave you of everything and brought you into his family, the kingdom, this new covenant. From that point on, his expectation is you're going to forgive no matter what. You will forgive. It doesn't matter who does what, who said what. And one of the things that just, you know, people, Christians, they try this. Yeah, but you just don't know what she said to me. Yeah, but you just don't know what they did. You just don't know. And what am I, God? <laughs> what? I'm, I'm the one with the lightning bolts in my hand? Seriously? Jesus went to the cross for you? And you refuse to acknowledge He did the same for them? Like, come on. He says... Verse 35, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. This is a kingdom teaching. Because this kind of forgiveness and this kind of love can only come out of a heart that's been born of God. And he's saying, you're opening the door for the tormentors. This is what God is telling you. He's warning you. You can't hold on to unforgiveness and expect everything to be okay. I'm firmly convinced that unforgiveness is a reason why a lot of Christians can't seem to break through financially. You think God's going to bless you? Oh, granted, you can go out and start selling drugs on the street corner and be a millionaire. But I'm talking about a move of God. See, God forgave us by allowing... The blood and death of Jesus to be the price paid for our sin and our wrongdoing. Well, we're to allow the blood and death of Jesus to be the price paid, you know, for how people sin and do wrong against us. Now, if we refuse to forgive, basically what we're saying is the blood and the death of Jesus is not enough to address what was what you did to me. It's just not good enough. Well, if we say that, then what we're doing is denying the power of his blood and his death in our own lives. You know, far too many Christians create their own rules and standards and regulations concerning forgiveness, no matter what God has declared in his word. And see, this is why it's so dangerous. See, you know, if you commit adultery, you know, while you're doing it, it's wrong. you know, while you're unbuttoning your shirt, you know. You know when you take that other person in your arms and kiss before you even unbutton the shirt. You know. You know it's wrong. Because there's a physical something going on. And that's just one example. But the unforgiveness, see, that's on the inside. You can't see that. But it's there. So we create our own rules. We create our own standards. And then we say something stupid like, well, when they come and ask me to forgive them, then I will forgive them. Really? 
Okay, and that is where? Come on. Where is that in Scripture? If thou forgive, do not do so until they ask you to forgive. That's not in here. I mean, I can turn my Bible upside down and I still can't find it. I can I can read it backwards, you know, scriptural backmasking. All right, I I still can't find that because it's not in there. This is what I'm talking about: the rules that we create to try and justify the sin, the deadly sin of unforgiveness. Look in Galatians chapter five. See, people think, you know, well, this judgment thing, you know, I just don't believe all that. I just don't really. And after Jesus says that your father, Father God, will turn you over to the tormentors unless you forgive everybody what they've done. God is warning you ahead of time. So then when you get turned over to the tormentors, what does that mean, turned over to the tormentors? I don't know. But let's put it like this. Why should you want to know what the tormentors are? Just accept the fact it's not good. The word it's you don't even need the Greek word for this one. Tormentors. Okay, I don't want that. I don't want tormentors. You ever had a splinter in a finger and you can't find it? And every time you bump and it's like, doesn't that hurt? And you get to the point to where just give me a knife, I'm gonna dig around for a while until I find this thing. Alright? Because that little bitty splinter that you can't even see is tormenting you. Okay? Jesus used the word tormentors, plural. How many splinters do you want? In Galatians chapter 5, look at this, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. That In verse 22, Spirit, that's your born-again Spirit. That's not the Holy Ghost, that's you. The fruit of your new nature. Your born-again spirit. What's the very first one? Love. Look at that. Love. That's the very first fruit that is supposed to be operating in your life. And if it's not, then how can you say everything's okay between God and me? Psalm 119. You don't have to look this one up. I'll just read it to you. You can write it down for your own personal reference. But Psalm 119, verse 165 Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall. Do you you see this? Great peace have they which love thy law. A new commandment I give you that you love. Forgive as you are forgiven. That's the law in the body of Christ. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. The moment you get offended is the moment that you're saying, I really don't love God or His Word the way I say. Look, this goes on, like I said, in every church. And we've had people, I mean, I've been here like, you know, since February 21st, 1999. And since that time, yeah, we've had more than one person eaten up on the inside with this stuff. And it's not good. Look in Romans chapter 5. For some people, this is a boring message. And for the people who find it to be a boring message, this is probably for you. Because, you see, this is a kind... 
this whole aspect, do you realize the entire Bible is about one thing? Hear me. One thing. God's love for humanity. That's the entire Bible. Genesis to Revelation. God's love for humanity. That sums up the message of the entire Bible. Should we not take this seriously? In Romans chapter 5, take a look here in verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulations worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Do you realize that when you hold on to unforgiveness, you're keeping the Holy Spirit from shedding God's love abroad in your heart? You're building a dam to it. See, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So if you're holding on to unforgiveness, you can forget about having a vibrant faith life because the faith works by love, and you're hindering the Holy Spirit from shedding the love of God abroad in your heart, and you're not forgiving. Guess what? Your faith's not going to work the way you think it is. Is it possible that this is a main reason why a lot of Christians simply can't seem to receive anything by faith? Yes, it is absolutely possible. Years ago, in a sermon, Pastor Dave Roberson made a statement that so impacted me, I wrote it down. He said, if you knew the effect unforgiveness has on getting prayers answered, you wouldn't even allow yourself to get mad. I, I hold unforgiveness toward you because you did such and such. You know, three years ago, you did this to me. So, and, and oh God, I come before you in prayer. And God is saying, hey, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm not able to work on your behalf because of this. See, the church at Corinth, you go ahead and turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The church at Corinth had a major problem. There was a lot of strife and discord, massive strife and discord in that church. Now, the gifts were operating, and some of them developed the idea that because a gift of the Spirit would operate through me every now and then, whatever, that they were the, the supreme something in that church. And in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is making it very clear, no, the gifts are in operation simply because the Holy Spirit is choosing to use them through you at a given point in time. This is not your anointing. And he explains in chapter 12 that the body of Christ is supposed to be in unity. And he compares the body of Christ to the human body. I mean, okay, think for a second. How many of you have been so angry with your thumb, that you wanted to take a saw and just cut it off. Well, that sounds silly. I would never do anything like that, Pastor Jim. You're weird. 
No, you wouldn't. But you know what? That's what we're doing in the body of Christ when we hold unforgiveness. Because every single Christian has value in the body of Christ. A purpose and a reason. And your unforgiveness is like trying to spread an infection in the body. It's sin. And the Apostle Paul, he says, look, he concludes chapter 12, verse 31, by saying, you covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. In other words, he's saying, yeah, covet the gifts, but I'm going to explain to you a way to have God move in your life with far more continuity than just the occasional manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. In chapter 13, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, the love of God in action in my life, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Do you realize what he's saying here? Even though I can speak in tongues, if I'm not operating in the love of God, which obviously has to do with forgiveness, he says, from God's perspective, you're a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am not nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I have my body to be burned, or give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. God's love and operation in your life suffereth long and is kind. It envieth not. It vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. You see, unforgiveness is a puffing up of the soul. It's pride. I'm so good and I'm so important, you need to come and make it right to me. No, they don't. I mean, it'd be nice if they did, but they don't have to. Because what's important is what goes on between you and God. He said that, God's love in action, charity, verse 5, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Can you see how unforgiveness is so tied into this? Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. God's love and action in your life never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, grown up, mature, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass, a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am know. I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three. But the greatest of these is what? The love of God in action in your part. We put so much value on the gifts of the Spirit, on anointing, on power. But the greatest of these is the love of God in action. Why? Because that is the message of God. God is love. That's the message in Scripture. See, if you're not operating in this kind of love and forgiveness, it, that unforgiveness, it, can, it, it, it creates spiritual interference to what God really wants to do in your life. It's like it's building a wall, and you're not going to be able to receive clear instructions from Him about your calling, nor about being used by Him in greater measure. 
That forgiveness has got to be there. In Amos chapter 3, verse 3, and I'll just read it to you. It says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And then over there in John, 1 John, we read this earlier. Chapter 4, verse 16, for example, it says, God is love. Okay, if you're not forgiving, you're not walking with God because the two of you are not in agreement. God, here, here's one that may just mess people's thinking up. <clears throat> Everyone who dies and ends up in hell, do you realize the forgiveness of God still exists? But now it's too late. So he doesn't hate the people in hell. He doesn't hold unforgiveness to them. And I'm constantly amazed at how Christians just don't understand these things. But here's the truth. It's not so much much a matter of understanding as it is a matter of rejecting what God has established in His Word. Now tonight, when I conclude this, I'm going to be sharing some things with you about unforgiveness that, as I mentioned earlier, I'm guessing many of you, if not all of you, have never heard in your lives. And I think for some, hopefully, if you're dealing with unforgiveness, this might be a little bit of shock therapy. Because, look, it's possible some of you in this room, maybe it's there. Well, Man, you've got to make this right. Because it's serious. And anyway, um, you know, if you're here or watching this, listening to this, and there's somebody that you've, you've been upset with for a long time because they did whatever to you. Yeah, well, six months ago they said, and or, or a year ago, or two years, or three, five, ten, fifteen years ago, you know, hey, yeah. Do you realize all this stuff? You know they talk about the reparations? You know what I'm talking about? How that you have blacks in this country that they say the government needs to give them a certain amount of money to make it right because, you know, great, great, great grandpappy might have been a slave. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you know what that is? The whole thing of the reparations? Do you know what that is? It's two things. It's a money grab and it's unforgiveness. That's all it is. You can say, well, you just don't understand. You're right. I don't understand because if you're a Christian, you're not going to jump on that bandwagon. Now, you get offended with me all you want. There's another variation of that that's going on. Many of you may not be aware of it. And it's coming from the Jewish community. The European nations, in particular Germany, they say, Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and others, the, the Jewish community, not all, but some, are saying, you owe us reparations because of the Holocaust. When does it end? Now, seriously, all that is, again, money grab and unforgiveness. When does it end? After you give me money? Seriously? Does that mean that if I give you the money, and for whatever, that's a lot of lawsuits. You know, I constantly am amazed, you know, somebody, something happened and then somebody says, well, I'm going to sue. For how much? You know, well, I'm suing you for a million dollars or whatever it would be. Okay, I'll give you a million dollars, but that's not going to fix what's going on inside you. Maybe your loved one did die in a car accident 
where I was driving and I was drunk and you sue me for a million dollars and you end up with the million dollars, does that replace your loved one? And does that make your life any better? You say, Brother Martin, you're just saying people shouldn't be held accountable. I'm not saying that. Please don't twist my words. Come on. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, when people are seeking money to fix a something that happened to them, trust me, that's not unforgiveness. That is not forgiveness. That's unforgiveness. People don't want to think of it like that. So what? We give you a million dollars and now I'm forgiven. In other words, I buy your forgiveness? <laughs> Seriously? Come on. You've got all different people groups crying out, you owe me money because of what you did to my ancestors. This goes on all over the world. That money, you know, the Beatles had a song a long time ago, can't buy me love. Well, you can't buy forgiveness. That price is already paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. So you either accept what he did or you don't. And get it settled. There are always going to be inequities in this world. You're never going to fix that. As a Christian, we have a responsibility to forgive everybody everything they have done to us without putting a price tag on it and without putting conditions on it. For God so loved the world, even the world that hated Him, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. If you're here today and you're dealing with some of this, guys, this is serious. You know, I could I could hold unforgiveness against my mother. She got pregnant when she was 14, gave birth when she, when she was 15, and then, and then, didn't want me around. Put me up for adoption. You know, why not just throw me out to the curb? You know. What was so wrong with me? I didn't ask to be born. It wasn't my fault. You're the one that did it. Yeah, see, I could I could be living with that kind of a chip on my shoulder my whole life. But I'm not. I never have. As far as I'm concerned, thank God she gave me up for adoption. I ended up in a home with a mom and a dad that took me to church, told me about Jesus, gave me a whooping when I, when I deserved it. <laughs> And I love them too. <laughs> Guys, we got to walk in love. we got to walk in forgiveness. That doesn't mean that every now and then something might happen and you've got to, God, I'm going to forgive. <laughs> Help me out here. I want to forgive because it's the right thing to do before you.